take another swing at happiness. In Matthew 5, blessed are you. Throughout the New Testament, we have reminders of the lie and the, the antidote to that deception in Genesis 3 that God doesn't want good for you. Throughout the New Testament, we have this message. This is one of those beautiful passages that tells you that. God wants good things for you. But he wants you to have them his way. And that's really important to accept. The problem of Christian liberalism is that we think our way and our inner leanings is more important than God's revelation. And so we create uh, a God that doesn't exist. And that's why it's been said Christian liberalism isn't really Christian. If you don't know what Christian liberalism is, it is the idea that the locus of revelation in Christianity is in your inner feelings instead of uh, your inner feelings of the divine instead of in God's word, word for word. And let go of the Bible, and then you feel your way to the God that you create for yourself. And, uh, of course, we, we don't go that way. But the Bible, the New Testament does constantly say God wants you to be happy. God wants you to enjoy his bliss. God wants good things for you. He wants blessing for you. And the problem with us is we don't have a sense of God's holiness. We don't have a sense of God's righteousness. We don't properly fear the Lord. <clears throat> and so... We don't really know if that's really true. And we pretend like our lives are an experiment to see if God really is good. You have before you in Matthew chapter 5 the beginnings of the platform, we call it, of the kingdom, of the ethic of the coming kingdom of Messiah that he's offering national Israel. The Bible must be interpreted in the time in which it was written Historically, the context for the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is the offer of the kingdom to national Israel in the wake, if after, in the conclusion of the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner preparing the nation through repentance to receive this offered kingdom. And the reason that this passage is so compelling and helpful for us is because it is a portrayal of God's righteous expectations of his people in the conduct of this coming kingdom and in the anticipation of it. It is all about God's righteousness. Therefore, Matthew 5 is an elaboration on the Mosaic law, a portrait of God's righteousness in practice and in portrayal, if you will, in, uh, in the, the, the Mosaic law, the law that God gave national Israel as their covenant stipulations. And so he's speaking, Jesus is teaching national Israel, his disciples who are Israelites, in the time in which they lived under the Mosaic law before he fulfilled it. And that's, that's important to understand the historical context of the message Jesus gives, but it's also important to understand the time in which Matthew wrote these things. Matthew wrote these things for the body of Christ, for the church, after Jesus had gone to the cross, after the resurrection, after the sending of the Holy Spirit, some 30 years perhaps, after the church received the gift of the Spirit so that we would walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 um, that uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, against such things there is no namas, no law, when he said that, 
I believe he said that before Matthew wrote Matthew chapter 5. And so it's important to understand that. I don't mean that Matthew had Galatians on hand. I don't mean that Paul uh, is schooling the apostles who wrote the gospels. I'm saying you have to understand the Bible and the time in which it was written. Matthew is showing us the kingdom ethic of God's righteousness lived out for those who are going to receive this kingdom. He offered it to Israel and it was rejected. We are not in it now. It is in what we call abeyance. We are anticipating its advent. And it comes with, with violence, According to Psalm 2 and Revelation 19, it comes with a violent overthrow of Satan and his deception of the nations, Daniel chapter 2 style. It comes with this second advent of King Jesus, and he will establish this offered kingdom. We believers in Christ in this age will be with him, and as sons of God in Romans 8, we will be part of his freeing of this earth from its curse. It is our destiny. This kingdom description, this character quality of God's righteousness lived out is expected of those in the coming kingdom. And it's what John was saying, repent for the kingdoms at hand, back to righteousness, back to the spirit of God's righteousness in the law, not the outward performance that was legalistic. And so you have to understand what the Sermon on the Mount is. Liberal theologians, liberal, when we say liberal, those that let go of the Bible and took over all the mainline denominations, they believe that they keep the Ten Commandments. They believe that they live their lives by the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer and the Beatitudes. And no one truly does, except we, as we walk by the Spirit in anticipation of the kingdom which Christ has called us to rule. <clears throat> I'll remind you of what Jesus told the disciples in uh, Matthew 19, what about us? We've left everything. Well, those who've left everything are going to receive these things back now and much more in the coming kingdom. And those 12 would rule on the 12 thrones, sitting, over, uh, sitting on 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel in the coming Israelite kingdom over the nations. So what I'm trying to tell you is there is a life we live now in righteousness, in the character of Christ, in dependence on God, the Holy Spirit, as we abide in Christ, the Christian spiritual life, it is characterized by righteousness lived out. And that is our marching orders for the day under the pressure internally from our sinful uh, flesh and, and from the external pressure of Satan and his cosmic system, the, the devil and the world. And we are under this pressure now, but we are marked out for this greatness of our coming rule. And so there's so much here for you and I to apply, to think through to what we should be like. And no, beloved, we are not covenant partners with God at Mount Sinai under the Mosaic law. But yes, all scripture, including the Mosaic law, is God breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So it's difficult to thread that needle. Let me just say that the text means what it means and it applies how it applies. And you and I find our ethic, what we want to be like. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, the description of our Savior beginning in verse 3, um, or, or one who has the character of our Savior under this present challenge of the fallen world. In verse 1, so when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up into the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay? So that's the setting as his disciples. He's talking by the way, his audience are those that are his students. Disciple means student. We're making disciples. That's what Matthew's written to help you understand the mission that he has commended to the church. 
And he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Last time I said he, he, he taught them, but it's actually in the imperfect tense. He began to teach them. An aggressive, imperfect. And I want you to understand that this word didasco, I can't emphasize it too much. He began to, to teach them. The sermon, today they'll tell you to preach. When you're, when you're preaching, preach. And when you're teaching, teach. And don't get that confused. Well, Jesus got it confused if this is a sermon because he was teaching them. In other words, our philosophy of ministry, I think, is biblically derived, but it's also experientially validated. We benefit when God's word is taught with certainty, with depth, with conviction. And that's what Jesus did here as he's expositing the Mosaic law. He opened his mouth, began to teach them, and he said, Makarios, happy are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've already offended everybody that's hung up on the English translations because everyone translates it blessed. And I've told you repeatedly, and I just hope you understand, I can't find anybody that disagrees with me about this, that the word makarios, I mean, I can't find any, um, any scholarship out there, any research that looks into the Greek. This word makarios does not mean God said something. It's true because he said something. It's true because he blessed you, but it's not the word blessed. This is the word for happy. It's the subjective experience you have because he's blessed you. What's the difference? Well, if we don't tell you the truth, if we don't tell you what the text actually says, then pop theologians come up with crazy ideas like Christian asceticism and stoicism, that you're not supposed to be happy, you're supposed to be holy, as though those are different. This passage is teaching you that the only path to true happiness is God's holiness. This passage is telling you there's a right way to think, a right approach to, to God, to yourself, and to others that amounts to God's dispensing of his bliss. And we all want you to have that. Everybody that loves you wants you to be happy, wants you to enjoy, wants you to enjoy God's bliss. Everyone that loves you, nobody wants you to live a tortured life except Satan, his fallen angels, and those who hate you. The loving God who made you for himself and is perfectly righteous and just acts as in what we call the, the doctrine of God's simplicity. It means that you never have an act of God that isn't at once righteous and loving. You never have God functioning in part of his essence without acting in the entirety of his essence. And his love requires righteousness. His love and joy and peace that he wants you to enjoy requires righteousness. And that's the part that we, we, we struggle with. I don't feel like righteousness. And therein is the difference between God's offer of true joy, this makarios, this happiness, and your fleshly leanings, my temporal limited, this is what I feel like. The truth that the liberal cannot understand, the, the, the theological liberal has never understood what's destroyed all the denominations. The, the truth is that you can't look into yourself to find this that God is offering. You don't have it to offer. We don't bring it. We can look at ourselves and say, oh, that needs a savior. I have a savior who died for my sins. I don't produce righteousness for myself. God, the righteous one in his grace, produces righteousness through me. We're afraid to talk about righteousness in the body of Christ because we've been accused of being self-righteous. We've been accused of being self-righteous in historic Christianity because at times we've been self-righteous. 
Ever heard of the Spanish Inquisition? That was supposed to be Christian. It was absolutely people claiming Christ, wearing upside down crosses for Peter, saying they were doing what Jesus wanted and actually working for the devil. Any anti-Semitic push where you have seen persecution of Israel, and that's what the Spanish Inquisition was primarily, was an anti-Semitic pogrom in Spain. This is motivated by Satan. You don't know, you don't see Satan fluttering around with his four cherubic wings, but you see his works. Now we, we have been self-righteous, we who claim Christ as our Savior. And every one of us has been self-righteous at some point. It's easy to see it. Think about the stuff that bothers you. Just think about stuff that bothers you, and then think about how you respond to that thing that bothers you. And you will start to spot the self-righteous legalistic tendencies that you have. And it, listen, it's not bad that it bothers you. That's not the problem. If your conscience is calibrated by Christ, if you are seeking God's righteousness, if you know from the word what right and wrong looks like, and you see what's wrong and it bothers you, it's not bad that it bothers you. And that's what Satan's world is trying to tell you. You're wrong for not liking something, or you're wrong because you don't believe something's right. The problem is when I connect that it bothers me to a sense that I'm better and I'm good in myself, and at least I'm not like that. And that arrogance combined with the truth that that's wrong ends up being wrong itself about a right thing. I'm right to say wrong, that's wrong, but I'm wrong about it. And it's this inner self-righteousness that we don't even see in ourselves sometimes. Everybody struggles with it. When you start to say that your sinful, arrogant self-importance is the standard not God's word, but the arrogant self-importance is the standard. You're, you start to see the legalism that takes a good thing and makes it bad. And that's what the religious crowd did in Jesus' day. That's legalism. Legalism is when I make a human standard out to be God's standard, and then I begin to judge people by the standard that I've invented. And we aren't legalists, but we do seek after righteousness, and it's important to parse that. We don't think we are righteous. We worship the living God who himself is perfect righteousness. We're in awe of the majesty of his infinite goodness. And the more we look at him, the more we have to be like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 and say, woe is me for I'm ruined. I've seen the living God. Some will say, well, that was the point where Isaiah became a believer. He was regenerate at that moment because he confessed his sins. And I say, nay, nay, that is not. When Isaiah probably became a believer, it doesn't say that. That's when Isaiah became aware of the differential between infinite, perfect holiness, righteousness, and justice on magnificent display in the heavenlies, and his own weakness, his own limitations, his own pettiness, his carnality. And he's ruined, and he starts immediately to talk about his mouth. Woe is me, for I'm ruined, for I've seen the, the Lord of hosts, I've seen the king, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is the right response to one who fears the Lord when brought face to face with his majesty. And that is the spirit of the Beatitudes. Happy are the poor in spirit. Now I want you to see in each one of these, there's some sort of differential that's being taught. There's a little bit of a wisdom in these Beatitudes. And the poor in spirit are those that don't think highly of themselves. They don't really think of themselves much at all. It's not about them. This is counterintuitive that they would own everything. 
For because, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is ownership. It's a genitive of possession. And it means belonging to them. What belongs to them is the coming kingdom of heaven that Jesus is offering. These are the people that the kingdom is for. These are the people that get to be subjects in good standing in the kingdom. These are the people that own a stake in it. Belonging to them is the kingdom of heaven. And it's a differential. You would think that the wealthy would get the kingdom. But the poor... But it's not just economics. It's not economics. It's attitude. I don't think more highly of myself than I ought to, or I really don't think of myself. I don't have time thinking about the Lord and what he wants and his people, or it's all about me. I got to take care of number one. I'm going to go get what I can get, what I can get it. That is the differential. If you let you go and you make it about what God wants, you fit into this category of the poor in spirit. It has to do with humility. And when you recognize the differential, as Isaiah did, between God's righteousness and your sin, then you start to see this poorness in spirit. People that don't need God's grace, God's blessing, they're good to go. This is part of the problem of our wealth and our affluence in the time in which we live. Don't you like when pastors say wealth and affluence? It's like a distraction because it's the same thing. You just say it twice and it doesn't help. I'm just reading a lot of Hebrew lately. We say the same thing twice. In our time of wealth, we don't feel a need. Uh, 9-12-2001, the the American flags came out. People came to church. Best prayer meeting ever was uh, on the day after 9-11, right? Because we're scared, because we're hurt. As if things collapse, boy, the church is going to get more important if we lose our lifestyle or something. Right? That'll, be, that'll be a good time to be a Christian, right? Because we're, we're foul-weather Christians sometimes. Things go bad and we get, we get holy. Things get good. We're comfortable. We're fat. We're like, ah, I'm good. I'm busy. I got you know, stuff to do today. And um, that's kind of a picture of the poor in spirit. I need the things God has. I don't have anything in myself. I am... I am totally dependent on the Lord who is my shepherd. I think of the Apostle Paul in the weak in spirit, or the poor in spirit, I should say, when he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong in 2 Corinthians 12. His portrayal of this suffering that God made him endure so that he wouldn't exalt himself. God humbled him through suffering, sent the thorn in the flesh, and Paul said, please take this away. And the Lord said, no, no, my powers may complete when you're weak. And so Paul says, I'll boast of my afflictions. I'll boast of my weakness. This is the idea. God is everything. God is everything to us, and there's no time for anything else. That's the attitude. Blessed or happy are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Now, what the differential here is that you have a need and it gets met. The mourning, those who are sad, those who are down because there's been a death because of the horrors. When you start to take on an attitude that embraces God's righteousness, remember we were talking about that before, things start to bother you. Stuff bothers me that didn't bother me before, right? And it's, it's a mess and you can get really down about this. And it's easy to get in a, in a, in a wrong frame of mind and get everything's bad and get all negative. It's a sophomoric Christian thing. Christians kind of start to get a sense of what right and wrong looks like. They start looking around like everything's bad. It's all wrong everywhere. It's wrong, 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 wrong. And that's where we start, say, you know, people start accusing self-righteousness because what do you think you're right? You've got to grow through all that. But the more you get calibrated to God's righteousness, the less comfortable you should feel in this world of deception. And that is a sad 
thing. I want to enjoy my life. I want to enjoy the, the world I live in. Hey, you can. You can enjoy God's bliss. You can be happy in Him as you lament the destruction of the human being. There's a lot to mourn about in the time in which we live. Not just the, the, the babies slaughtered in Israel, the women ravaged, and all the things that have been done um, to, to the civilian population by military forces. There's a lot to mourn about in the world we live in all the time, everywhere you look. One of the things that should give us pause is the numbers, the numbers of children in this country, this affluent and wealthy country, the numbers of children that are abused by adults. Sexual abuse of children by adults in this country where supposedly the legal system is designed to protect the individual freedom and, and autonomy of their body from oppression by the government or by others. And yet it's a system that's incapable of bringing actual justice to the destruction of children. And the numbers are staggering. I've shared with you some of the numbers uh, in recent weeks. It, they're staggering the number of children that have been hurt by adults, almost always, by, overwhelmingly by someone they know. With prolific offenders who are guilty of thousands of crimes before they ever enter the system, 90% of whom do not enter the system. It's not that everyone you know is doing this. It's that the people that are doing this are very prolific. They do it a lot. We have a lot to mourn about. Now, if you're like me, your first response to that is to grind your teeth a little bit and start looking for a ball-peen hammer because I'm a hothead. We're going to fix this, but you're not going to fix this. So we mourn, we grieve about these wicked things that happen. Just think about little kids and what happens to little kids. You could be mourning all your lives. And there's a good news for that. For whatever reason, in terms of God's righteousness you have to mourn, you will be comforted. That's the hope. So we meet a differential. There is a need, mourning, and, and, and not being comforted, and then that'll be satisfied. And that's proof, by the way, that Jesus, who represents God the Father, who's giving his policies, he wants you to enjoy. He wants you to be satisfied. He wants you to be comforted his way in righteousness and peace and truth. Happy are the meek. We talked about this a little bit last time. Praus, praea, prow as an adjective in all different genders, all three genders in, in Greek. I just said three genders, and some of you are like, oh, no. <laughs> Greek's more complicated than other languages, more communicative in some ways, and so they've got a neuter gender. They can say something masculine, feminine, or neuter. And so if it's a neuter noun, it gets a neuter uh, adjective. That's all. But this word is, um, is an adjective used as a noun to describe a class of people, and the class are described basically by humility. The meekness doesn't mean weakness, it means humble. If it was weakness, then, um, then the world is, uh, all the Christians are doormats, and, um, and we, are, we would have been snuffed out in you know, the first and second centuries. But we're strong, we're resolute, and we are only strong and resolute in Christ. And he has a plan, and he has our days numbered, and we may be called to witness with our lives um, at government um, persecution. Or we may just have to suffer every day to witness with our lives under the world's attacks without perhaps government persecution. But the point is that we're not weak, we're meek, we're humble or gentle. 
We said last time, this word means not being overly impressed by a sense of self-importance, to be gentle, humble, considerate, or meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for or after righteousness. I asked you as we concluded last week, does this characterize you? Do you, like Peter says, hunger like a newborn baby for the milk of God's word? Because Peter commands us to do it. So if we're not doing it, well, that's a moment of needed repentance or change of our minds. I don't need to live like that. Perhaps you're insensitive in your spiritual life to that hunger. Perhaps you don't feel it. I, I'm just, I could spend all week without God's word. Maybe your idea of hungering after the word, like a newborn baby after his mother's milk, is maybe your idea is that we go to church for an hour on, a, a week. Sunday morning, I show up, and uh, I'm, I'm there, and then, well, then I leave. And that's your idea of hungering after the word, like a newborn baby after mama's milk. That really doesn't get it, does it? Now, there's a whole reorientation of life that this one is calling for, and you can't get it from the world. You can't look left and right. Uh, I really don't recommend you look what church after church, what, what's that church doing or this church doing. I recommend you look up to God and you ask him in his word, what would this be like? And you ask him to give you a, a, a perspective, give me a, a vision, an idea of what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. What's the blessing? Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, see the differential? They're hungry. So what's the satisfaction of that? They'll be filled. If you want the things of God, God's going to give them to you. Trouble with us, we don't want the things of God. And and listen, listen, this is really important, and I can bear witness about this kind of rationale in my life. I, I, I'm a teenager when I first think this through, and I've thought it through many times in my life ever since. But think about this. It's clear what God is saying I should want. I should want his righteousness. I should want his goodness. I should be after that, not after the alternative. Because when you say righteousness, it's, it's that or, or anything else is not that. It's binary. There's righteousness and unrighteousness. There's not in the middle ground. So I'm, hun- I'm, I'm hungry and thirsty after those things. And you could say, well, I don't really feel that. I mean, it's late October. We've got to have the festival of the dead coming up. You know, you've got to celebrate death. This culture is really embracing that more and more, embracing the death. I'm not sure what we're celebrating, the, 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 just the sense of spookiness or that women like to dress scantily and call it uh, a costume for a party. I'm not really sure why this is such a big thing, but I have an idea, and it has nothing to do with, uh, with culture. It's affecting the culture. But there we are, we're celebrating death as a civilization. I heard someone, you know, I've told you, someone calls it adult Christmas. They're looking forward to this festival, a celebration of the dead. And, and what they might get, they, they might get us or something. And we like to be scared and, and haunted and all that. Well, I remember being a kid and, and enjoying that stuff. But why? And, and am I hungering and thirsting after righteousness if I'm after that? And the answer is I can't be. You just, you can't. You can't. And that's the world, and you got to make a choice. We all have to make choices. But here's the thing. I don't really think in my flesh that if 
I want the things of God that he'll give them to me. There's something about that diabolical deception of Satan holding back the goods that infects my life, affects all of our lives. We really don't think in the moment when we're really needing the things of God, we don't think he's giving them. We think he's holding back from us. And Jesus tells you, whether you feel this way or not, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, God will give it to you. He'll fill you. He'll, he will fill you. If you want the things of God, you'll get them. So what's the rationale from when I was a kid? I don't feel a desire to want it. I don't want this. One of the things I struggled with as a teenager was gratitude. I'm supposed to give thanks at all times for all things. I'm not feeling very grateful. God, what's wrong with me? I just don't feel grateful. As though it says, feel grateful. And I realized somewhere in that, from 12 to 20, somewhere in there, it occurred to me that I am actually needing to choose this whether I feel it or not. Because my feelings are not the same as my agency, my volition. And that is the key. I choose to rejoice. I choose to be grateful. I choose to hunger after the things of God since he commands me to, for example, in 1 Peter 2. But the promise here is that you can rejoice, you can enjoy God's bliss in his righteousness if you will hunger and thirst after it. This is one of those places where we quote Chesterton, right? Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been uh, found difficult and not tried. I can't want that. I can't want the things of God. What occurs to you when we say hunger and thirst for righteousness? What, what jumps into your um, imagination? Think about that. What's in your imagination when someone says righteousness, hungering and thirst? For Probably something that's boring, young people. Probably something like <sighs> prayer or reading the scriptures or something that's not fun and dynamic and exciting and engaging. I mean, if it was only fun, then maybe I could hunger and thirst after righteousness. But since there's not a lot of fun there, I just can't do that. I just can't go for that. I've got to go for what's stimulating and entertaining. And here's the, the, the truth about that. It's almost like, I'm going to use a complicated example. It's almost like what carbon monoxide does to your blood. Carbon monoxide has oxygen in it, but you can't use it. So you need, you need oxygen, not carbon monoxide. And if you breathe carbon monoxide, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that that molecule will, will, will adhere to your blood cells where they're trying to grab oxygen. And so they'll take away the receptor to oxygen in your blood, in your red blood cells, and then you can't get oxygen. And that's how you die, is you, you, your, you, you, your brain dies from a lack of oxygen. That's how carbon monoxide poisoning works. But notice what it does. That molecule doesn't just go in and come out. It goes in and clings to your blood cells where the oxygen receptor is. And so it's a counterfeit. And it chokes out the life that you could have had because if you breathe some O2, it, the, the blood cells do their job. Red blood cells grab an oxygen molecule and take it to the brain and to the tissues and it works. That's, that's kind of like what the alternatives to hungering thirst after righteousness are that there are good things that I'm going to have to lose and let go of that I really enjoy and it's not worth it. But the thing is, you're, you're just breathing poison and it's going to kill you. The life that God wants you to live is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. 
It's what you need. And I didn't say that you feel that way. And I didn't say that you're going to be able to try it out and then see if you like it. You need to just go there. You need to step out in faith and ask God, help me hunger and thirst after righteousness. And that is the prayer if you think this doesn't describe you. I don't really hunger after righteousness. Ask him. Ask him. Help me do this. Help me be like Jesus is describing. Don't assume legalistic self-righteousness here. It's not that we're righteous. It's that we want God's righteousness. Happy are the merciful because they'll receive mercy. This is the first one that talks about other people. This is explicitly, you're not giving God mercy. This is about you and other humans. And so it's a description of the way we get along with others. So it is very much, the Sermon on the Mount is very much the law and it is the exposition of the law that Jesus is helping them understand what it really means, what it's about. And he went from us and God to us and man, just like in the Ten Commandments. Four commandments about uh, Israel's relationship to God, six commandments in the Ten for how they would relate to man for God's sake. And so happy are the merciful. This is the cause. And because they will receive mercy, that's the effect. And so there is God's dealing. He thinks it matters how we treat other people. He thinks it matters. It matters to him. And so the mercy that you'll receive isn't from people. It's from God. And that's the way he wants you to deal. It matters how you deal with people. Now, it's been said this is law righteousness, and they had, we have faith righteousness. They had law righteousness. And uh, early dispensationalists will read like they thought there was two ways of salvation. Like if you kept the law in Israel, you were saved, and we believe in Christ, and we're saved. And we don't actually believe that. There's only been one way of salvation throughout world history, and it's faith alone in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah before he came, the one who did come that we've trusted in now that he's come, and we're anticipating his second advent. And so what's going on here is the way you treat people matters to God. And you're supposed to take his grace that you've received and pass it on. You're supposed to be an exponent of that grace. You're supposed to be a gracious person, a merciful person. You have received mercy, so let's be people of mercy. God, give us an appetite for these things. Happy are the pure of heart because they will see God. Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his commentary says that this is a reference to telling the truth. Pure of heart means to tell the truth. It just means to be honest. There is absolutely in pureness of heart a sense of honesty. Honesty with yourself, honesty with God. Don't pretend like you're not guilty of what you're guilty of. But I believe that there's more, to just not lie, more than just not lying in this. I think this is the quality of the inner person that God is looking at. And what, does, what is required to see God? This is a statement of how theology works. God's righteous. He requires righteousness for those in his presence. You're going to need righteousness. That's the imputation of righteousness upon faith in Christ. And that is supposed to then, as I disciple up, carry forth in my choices and my desires and what I expose myself to and the taking in of God's word and the transformation of it. And I just said what I expose myself to. Some of you just resonated like, oh, turn off the TV. It's probably the best choice you could do at any given point. But listen, Christianity is not defined by what it doesn't do. Righteousness is not the absence of unrighteousness. That's, that's backwards. Righteousness is, the own, is its own quality. Unrighteousness is anything that falls short of it. 
we're not, we're not characterized by, we're not offering a bunch of things we don't do. Actually, against such things, there's no law. We're actually just too busy with the things we are doing to be distracted by Satan's lies and the, and the alternatives that, are, that he offers. Verse nine, happy are the peacemakers. See, that's not between you and God. This is people. This is you being God's agent among other people. A peacemaker is somebody that makes peace. And actually, it's, um, it's two words jammed together. The Greek will do that. Iro, um, Irenopoioi is the inflected form. And it comes from Irene. The name Irene means peace. And um, poieo is the standard Greek word for doing something. So the doers of peace or the peacemakers is how they translate, to do or to make. So that's what this word is, the peacemakers. This is not a reference to any, um, any variants of uh, single action 45 caliber pistols in the 1800s, although they call one of those a peacemaker. Um, that's not what this is. That, that was all tongue in cheek. Um, there's a town, the people in the, um, in the Southwest in the, in the early day, in the 1800s, the 1830s through 90s, they were so funny in some of the things they said. There's a town down from where I'm from. First of all, there was a guy that looked on a, a hilltop uh, across the, the, the town area where I was from, and they said, what a long view. That's what they said. It's just like that. What a long view. Hey, OH, let's call it long view. That's how they named my town. There's a town down the road. They have to be just bitter people. They named their town Sulphur Springs. <laughs> All my life, I grew up with Sulphur Springs down the street, over at Sulphur Springs. It never occurred to me, those people were were sarcastic <laughs> naming their town. <laughs> I suspect it didn't smell great there, but the kids and they lose the football game. They're like, our team stinks. All right. So <laughs> now the peacemakers, peacemakers are, are people that understand what God is about. They're thinking about his goals in the interaction. They're not thinking about what do I get out of this or I'm going to have my way or, or my will be done. They're thinking, God, you have your way. And what he wants between people truly is peace. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men in Romans 12. Happy are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. Now, let me, let me, you just read through, okay, we're sons of God, they're sons. What does that mean, sons of God? Son is usually, in a context talking about humans, it's talking about inheritance. Through this whole passage, they'll inherit. The the meek will inherit the earth, right? The, 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 The belonging to them, their inheritance is the kingdom. All through, we have that three or four times. The sons of God is the same theme, that they are his heirs, and here's the really important part about that conduct of making peace. Oh, well, I'm going to go make peace so I can get some inheritance. That's really not the motivation. The son is taking on the character of the father. The son is about the father's interest. The son wants the dad's agenda to be carried out. That's what Jesus shows us. The ultimate son shows us how to be the ultimate son to the ultimate father. What dad wants, dad gets because dad's in charge and has the right to make that decision. So that recognition of sovereignty. When you are in the strife, when you're in the situation and you're seeking to find a way to make peace, not with unrighteousness, but a righteous peace, you are after your father's agenda in the conflict. 
That's the idea. You're the son of God because you're acting like your father and you're his heir. You're his representative in the situation. I can tell you that there have been a few occasions where God has allowed me. I know you're like, some of you that know me are like, this is a crazy thought, but it has happened where I've been the peacemaker. It really shouldn't be that way, but I guess I'll work till the guy shows up that could do it well, right? But but, um, it's amazing to see how this works when there needs to be an arbitration between brothers, between people that are in the wrong frame of mind, that are thinking fleshly thoughts, that are completely divorced from the things of God in the moment. And God provides, really just opens doors through the circumstance for us to walk through that amount to let's get our eyes back on our Savior and what we're really about and put things in perspective. It's such a blessing when he lets you do this. And um, it's just his grace that you get to be able to do this. But I, I, I personally, some of you, maybe, maybe all of you have had this opportunity, but we should be looking for this. When there's strife, we should be looking above the level of the detailed concerns to the real destiny, the real goals, the real objectives of our Father. The things that you're fighting over are all kindling. It's all going to burn up. The things you're squabbling about in eternal perspective really don't have that much significance. So try to adopt that perspective and bring it into the situation, right? It's all about perspective for people to, to have peace when there's strife, when there's, when there's conflict. And this should be true, especially in a local church. Churches divide all the time over hurt feelings, over unaddressed transgressions, over misunderstood statements, or, or just something gets, something gets sideways, and then we get bitter and resentful, and then we become a root of bitterness springing up defiling many. And we should, we should all be really good at saying, wait a second, what does God want between us? I like to say that conflict is one of the ways that um, really demonstrates the character of the persons in conflict and the strength of the organization, Preston City Bible Church should be really good at conflict resolution internally. One of the things that we've done, though, in the past is we've tried to avoid conflict, conflict avoidance as the strategy. Well, you should. You shouldn't try to cause a problem with people. That's the opposite of the peacemaker, the one that stirs up discord and causes problems. Run in your mouth. Run in your mouth in a place in a time that you shouldn't. Right? And it happens, and it's usually your mouth, by the way. By the way, it's the flame of fire that sets the fire. It's your tongue. So what, what's wrong with avoiding the conflict? Well, when there is a conflict, simple avoidance doesn't really resolve anything. It just lets bitterness set in, and there's no resolution. There's no making peace. We should all be one part of another. We should all be in an actual cell where the proteins fit together and work together. We should see ourselves that way. And here's the ultimate way, I think, to make conflict uh, resolved is that when you go into the situation, we have to have this talk. The parties that need to be here are here and nobody else. It's so we can actually get something done here. When there has to be this resolution, there has to be an upfront commitment to its outcome. If we don't have a goal for the interaction and we don't adhere, we're going to resolve to be about God's work and trust in him that we in Christ can be one. If we don't have that as our goal that we're all working toward, then you'll never have the resolution. And sometimes it doesn't work because it takes two people to, to solidly commit to that and they have to see that commitment through. Whatever else happens, I've already nailed this tent peg in the ground. We're gonna be one. We're gonna be unified in righteousness about the things of God for his sake. And that means that I have to own what I have to own. And when I do, you can't become a grudge-holding, self-righteous bigot about my failure because that's no peace. 
And so I'll own, but you're going to have to deal with that and, 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 and truth and grace and that, that kind of thing. And it's really hard. But I think if you have your goal laid out in front, that our goal is peace, because we read right here in Matthew 5.10. If that's your goal that you're working toward and we both commit to that, we should be able to deal with the details. Bigger picture has to take precedence over the little details. And so, um, see, the, the, old, the old adage, you know, there's no, no telling what could be accomplished if we don't care who gets the credit. That, that old thing, you know, it, it doesn't matter who's right because God is right. So let yourself go. And, and humility really is the key to these things. But that's, that's, these are the things that, that end up being peacemaking and conflict. <clears throat> In verse 10, happy are those persecuted on account of righteousness. Talk about a contradiction in terms. Happy because persecuted. Pastor, you are talking about masochism. We must just love to suffer, we Christians. No, you're happy because of what's coming, not because of what you're experiencing. This is a very clear pattern in the scriptures. Who for the joy before him, Jesus with what's coming, endured the cross, the spikes, and the shame. And so he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Christianity is lived with what's coming. And so persecution is now, glorification is then, we're looking for then, we're using that as our motivation. And it's very important to do this, especially for people like me, maybe you're like me, who want to make the most out of today. Jesus said in Matthew 6, today you know, is the focus, you can only deal with today. So if today's bad, then everything's bad because I'm only focused on today. You can't live like that. You have to live today in light of all that God has promised, and that's called hope. And you expect God to do what he said. And this is why you're happy if you're persecuted on account of righteousness. Not because of the persecution. Not because we like to suffer. But because belonging to them is the kingdom of heaven. It's eschatological. It's end times joy. Oh, this is coming. I can rejoice now in what God has promised even though I don't have it now. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said. John 8. Happy are you when they insult you and persecute and falsely say all kinds of wicked words about you on account of me. This is interesting in the flow of his teaching because he never said it's you who are this. But he's been all along saying this is what you want to be. And now he says, now happy are you. Is this you? Do you want righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Can you rejoice in persecution because you know what's coming and it's that real to you? The word is so real to you that you know the kingdom is coming and that's the end of the, of the question of the election cycles and the military interventions and all those things. The kingdom's coming. Can you rest in that? Does that you? Yeah, happy are you. When they insult you, get ready, and persecute and falsely say all kinds of wicked words about you on account of me. Yeah, sometimes the kids get angry when their brother tells the truth. I mean, or some kids, not, not my kids, of course. But sometimes they get angry because their brother tells the truth and they were trying to keep it a secret and then the truth comes out of the bad thing they did and they get violent, satanic, angry because someone told the truth. But that's nothing compared to the rage when they tell a lie on you. I didn't even, I wasn't even there and you're saying I did that. We're going to war, Right? that's what he's talking about when they falsely say all kinds of evil things against you. There's a lot people could say about any Christian, any believer. You could say all kinds of things about us that would be true 
And we would be guilty of them and we'd say, but for the grace of God, I deserved the lake of fire for those bad choices, those untimely words, those um, moments of anger, whatever the sin thing is. Yeah, I've got sins that that I'm guilty of and God's working on me about it and Jesus paid for those sins and in a positional sense, I'm forgiven. In an experiential sense, when I confess them, I'm forgiven. And so, yeah, that's true, but this isn't that. This isn't where someone throws your sins at you. This is where someone says that you're guilty of things that you're not guilty of. Jesus is, is, uh, is uh, uh, trying to bring down the Roman Empire. Well, eventually he will. That's the prophecy of Daniel 2 and, and, and further, but that's not what he's doing in the first advent. And they say all kinds of wicked words about you account of me. Why are you happy? Rejoice and exult. <laughs> this is a command to rejoice. Did you know Jesus commands rejoicing? Not just Paul. Jesus commands rejoice. You could also translate that agaliazo to, to leap for joy. I like what you do for me, right? Leap for joy. All right, so in the 80s, there's this Japanese car company called Toyota. And people, every time they did a Toyota commercial at the end, the person would jump up in the air and then they would freeze it. And that would be the, like the snapshot of the person jumping in the air. That's agaliazo. That's leap for joy. Not because your car is going to last until Jesus comes back, but in Jesus coming back himself. Rejoice and exult because your reward is great in heaven. And you're in good company, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. Will, you. will you sit with me for one more second? How do you learn? How do you know what's good for you? How do you know where the happiness is? A lot of people learn the hard way. That is an unfortunate electric stovetop. And it is illuminated because hot. Now, we've all had the experience of being told, don't touch that, that's hot. Said in love. And then, hopefully, one time we had to be told, and then we had to learn by experience, and we touched it. And we said, what is that smell? It wasn't that bad, but I'm just saying, you burned yourself. (laughs) These pictures are exhausting. Now, where should I not touch it? That. Especially there. Right? Because why? Hot. Have you ever touched something and gotten a, a blister that was like big? Because you, you know. Um, where is it here? Where do you not touch it? You're like, the blade's been... No, I'm talking about where's the heat. They've got a little cage over it right here. It's the same thing. Don't touch that. That's the, that's the stack, that, the exhaust muffler stack that's going to burn you. <coughs> Hopefully you learned when your mom said, don't touch that, it's hot. And you touched it and you're, then you cried and you got burned. And that's called wisdom. Young people... There's a whole life out in front of you where you will have a desire and you have a, a God-given desire to be satisfied, to be happy, to be content in life. God's word, the Lord Jesus is telling you in Matthew 5 that it's to be found in righteousness. It's to be found in the things of God. It's to be found in him, even in unpleasant circumstances because you're being found in him. That's where the happiness is. 
Can you get it from being told? Can you know that's where to go? Or does your life have to be an experiment of failure after failure after failure to find satisfaction in anything but God? How do you learn? Are you wise? Can you learn from the instruction of your Savior? Or do you have to learn from his school of hard knocks? Asked in love, encouraged because I love you. And I'll leave you with the most, uh, most exquisite example of the guy that would never learn. Judges chapter 14, we read of a fella who saw a bunch of pretty girls and he picked the one he liked the most. I'm not sure which one of those it is, but it's one of those. She's a Philistine, like these ladies here. Don't they look like Philistines? <laughs> then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back, told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. <sighs> now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. I've picked one out. She's the best. Trust me. Trust me. I know. Trust me. This is the one. Well, there's a lot of reasons why that's not the one. Now, the story ends up with her and her family dead, burned to death in their house because of this. It's because, directly cause effect. But, but he likes her. She's good looking. Get her for she looks good for me. Get her for me as a wife. And then his father's mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives and among all your people do you take for a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Well, we don't, we're not dealing with that particular national issue today, so this doesn't apply to us, right? No, we serve Yahweh and the Philistines don't. Don't pick one that doesn't serve Yahweh. That's the message. But Samson said to his father, get her for me for she looks good to me. Amen, brother. We want somebody that looks good to us. She probably looked better before this drawing was made. What makes for a pretty girl? What makes for something you want, for something that you're attracted to? Notice I have to do drawings. I have no idea. I don't want to get actual pictures of, of people that are like photographs or something. I, what's a good looking Philistine girl look like? Who cares? This isn't God's way. There's nothing wrong with a pretty girl. It's the pretty idolater. It's that idolatry problem. Now, this is after Ruth or in the, time, the days of the judges. This is the days of Ruth. You could have got a Moabite girl that became a believer. That would become a daughter of among our people. But she looks good to me. I know what's good for me. It's the same thing. God's telling you where happiness is. Happiness is in this girl that looks good to me. I'm going to have her. How do you learn? Nobody who loves you wants you to suffer. And that decision is a lifetime decision. Oh, no, no, I can get divorced. It's a lifetime decision. So be loved, be challenged, be reminded that God's joy and blessing for you is available, but it's in him and it's his way. Our Father in heaven, we, we praise you and bless you for this eternal life we've enjoyed today, thinking through your word, you're thinking your thoughts after you. It's our desire that we would be pleasing you in every aspect. We know that that involves you satisfying our longing for happiness, for bliss, for joy, and we know where it comes from, for your righteousness, from the things of God. Father, this is an article of faith that we, we have to take on faith here. And it's our prayer for our loved ones, our family, friends, anyone that hearing my voice today, that they would hear that you love them and have the best and highest for them. That's why you sent your son, Jesus, to pay for their sins on the cross. Father, we thank you for this great love that you've, sh you've shed 
uh, on our lives and our hearts. Thank you for the Holy Spirit bringing your love forth through us as a fruit of the Spirit, that we can love you as we should and one another. And Father, we pray for those that are struggling in this life, looking for the satisfaction in the, the, the flesh, in the world, playing the devil's game, getting momentary, uh, fleeting satisfaction, and then the pain and the suffering that comes with that bitter, bitter fruit of wickedness. And I pray that we would come to have an appetite for righteousness. Build it in us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.